Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Psalm 127, which can be found on page 518 in the Pew Bibles around you. Would you please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word? Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Amen. Good morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for your word. Would you give us a spirit of grace this morning upon both the speaking and the hearing of your word? Would you give us spirit of revelation in this room, I ask? Would you strengthen us in your grace and strengthen us in your sovereignty for your glory and your um, your renown. God, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, for the next couple weeks, as we enter into this season in, our, in the fall calendar, every fall, we start afresh a new ministry year. We start new programs and we start new focuses that we give ourselves to as a church. What we're going to do in the next two weeks in the pulpit is finish out our time in the Songs of Ascents which are Psalms 120 to Psalms uh, 134. And specifically over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at a call to work in what God has put before us as a spiritual family, right? So we're gonna look at Psalm 127 this morning and then Psalm 132 next week. And in some ways they're gonna be like uh, part one and two of the same sermon. But essentially what we're getting at is as we come into a new season, as we put new things on the horizon and as we call toward uh, what God is doing in the midst of our spiritual family, they are in a particular way a call to work. But so what I want us to do is to dig into Psalm 127 this morning with a view toward how we work as we set ourselves before what the Lord has uh, called us into. So just a quick review, Uh, look with me at letter A if you have the notes. Uh, Throughout all history, the people of God seek to understand their lives and the situations that they find themselves in within a biblical framework, right? Because of this, we are always trying to quote unquote find ourselves in the story, in the stories of scripture, in the narratives that God has revealed in and through his word. Look at letter C. Because of this, there is a necessary and important element in the life of the church, particularly as a church experiences uh, unique seasonal moments 
to understand what God is doing in our moment in light of scriptural patterns, stories, and practices, right? This presumes something though. It presumes that God is at work. You could go to John 5 uh, as the undergirding for what we're talking about here. Uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus has just healed this man at, at the pool uh, uh, who had been crippled for his whole life. And they're coming against him going, what are you doing? And he says, hey, I am only doing what I see my father doing. And he says this wonderful phrase. He says, my father is always working. He's always at work. And so as a spiritual family, what I want to do is get up in front of us and go, God is working. What we need to do as a family is to begin to ask the question, God, how are you at work? And what do you desire? And what does it look like for us to come up into agreement with and into alignment with where you are at work and what you are doing? And where we go to find that is in the patterns and the stories and the narratives of his holy word, where he has revealed these things to us. So look at Roman numeral two. We're going to jump into Psalm 127 together. The call to build. At the heart of Psalm 127 is a portrait of work in the kingdom of God and under the reign of the most high, right? This is a picture of a disposition toward labor and activity in God's economy. Letter B, many believers have a really difficult relationship to work, right? This can be seen both in how we view working as it relates to our personal life before God. You start talking about obedience and labor and effort in the grace of God and people start to get real squeamish. Right? We don't know how to make sense of it, but it also uh, happens in relation to our vocations or in our family life or what we give our time and energy and effort and labor toward. There is this remarkable difficulty that I find so many believers have related to the concept of work. And I think this is because work throughout scripture is presented as a paradox of two realities that we have to hold together, right? So work in the kingdom of God is not a problem to be solved. It is a tension that we have to hold on to, right? And the paradox is this. We heard it read in Psalm 127, and you're going to hear me say this a bunch of times today. We heard it read, right? If God doesn't work, our work is in vain. But the implication from that is not, so don't work, it isn't, hey, hey, so take it easy, man. Kick up your feet, sit back, just take it easy. Just coast through life. Live like bebopping one thing to the next. That's not the implication, right? The implication is reframe how you work, not that you shouldn't, right? So these are the paradoxical realities. All through the scripture, we see God has to work or else our labors are in vain. And there is remarkable reality that we still give our time and energy and efforts and labors to things. So how do we hold them in tension? Oftentimes, I find that believers struggle to hold these things in tension and fall into distorted ways of viewing work in the economy of God. 
Letter C, from the beginning of the biblical narrative, we see that mankind is created with a distinct mandate to work. God created the whole of the cosmos with a purpose, right? To fill it with his glory. And after he himself worked for six days, bringing order and distinction to his creation, he created man and woman in his image, right? So we see from the jump, God works, right? And one of the realities of being made in his image is that we are now given a task to fulfill a vocation in partnership with him. Work is an essential and integral part of the created order and what it means to be human. Look at Genesis 2.2, right? On the seventh day, what did God finished work, right? He, he had been at work accomplishing his purposes, filling his plans. Look at the top of page two. So the creation account gives us a portrait of two distinct roles that humanity is to fulfill in relationship to God, right? If you've ever wondered what it, mean, what it means to be made in the image of God, it's really two concepts tied into one. The first is that as image bearers, we possess the unique capacity among all creation to live in relationship with God and to be conformed into his likeness, right? So there's a relational piece of what it means to be made in the image of God. We have the faculties necessary to participate in what I would call like-kind communion. Not that we are God or we're of the same essence as him, but he has granted us in his mysterious wisdom the capacity to be according to his likeness. It's remarkable. But the second thing that it means is that we as humans made in the image of God are created to work in partnership with God. Ultimately, in, created, uh, in the creation account, this was to expand the boundaries of God's garden temple to the ends of the created order and to fill it with the knowledge of the glory of God. To be created in the image of God means that we're invited into playing meaningful and vital parts of realizing and accomplishing God's purposes in the world. Look at Genesis 2, 15, right? The Lord took the man after creating him, putting, breathing into him his life. He puts him into the garden of Eden for what purpose? To work it and to keep it. Letter E, sin, however, has distorted and brought intrinsic difficulty and futility to the work that mankind is called to do. Right? Because of our sin, because of the sin of our first parents, the man and the woman are cursed precisely in the places where they have been called to operate in partnering with God's purposes to fill the earth with his glory. Right? The man was put in the garden for a purpose. What? To work and keep. And when we sin and death enters the world, what does God do in cursing the ground? Right? He makes Adam's work really hard. Right? Look, at the, look at the language of Genesis 3. I just want you to notice three things. In pain, thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of your face. Right? He's not saying all of a sudden he's now implemented this new concept that never was there before in work. What he's saying is the work that you are called to do is going to 
be frustrated. It's going to be broken. It's not going to work the way that you want it to. And this is actually designed, total side note, this is designed precisely as a grace, right? It's meant to be frustrating and hard and difficult so that we humble ourselves in our brokenness and in our sin unto the Lord and we don't just run headlong into making our own way. God knows that in our sin and in our wickedness and in our brokenness, if we were left unchecked and it wasn't frustrating, we would accomplish everything we wanted, which is to our detriment. And so God made your work hard on purpose. He made it frustrating. He made it uh, opposed so that we would humble ourselves, recognize that from dust we came to dust we will return, and we live acknowledging his grace. Letter F, we now live in the times where we have a very troubled and tenuous relationship with work because of the fall and the curse that has been placed on the earth. So this leads often to one of a couple wrong mindsets related to work. Just want to highlight these. Number one would be something akin to apathy. Right, a lot of Christians or even unbelievers now take a false view of work based on either the fact that it is difficult or we misapply the concept that God has to intervene and we become passive in it. Right? We have an apathetic, passive view toward it. The second false mindset that we uh, will enter into, and this is what the psalm, this psalm particularly is addressing head on, is that we, we come to this place of like control, right? We, we distort work and we take the whole burden for the outcome of our labors, our provision, our safety, our well-being. We take these into our own hands, it overemphasizes work and begins to be bogged down with an anxious and toiling spirit. Okay, so in this psalm, though, is the call to work, implicit within it. From the opening verse, we're put face to face with the tension. God must intervene. However, we're seeing that we still are called to work. So look at the necessity of God's intervention. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So the psalm immediately brings us into the heart of the paradox related to work, right? Solomon declares that if God does not ultimately intervene through his power and presence, the labors of our hands are done in vain. Now I want you to notice something though. This is a set up as a condition, right? Intended to shape our posture as we work. Unless the Lord intervenes, we're doing this in vain. It does not mean, again, that we're not called to work, right? Solomon doesn't say, since God has to work, don't worry about it, right? He doesn't go, you got a free pass now. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about showing up. Don't worry about the difficulty. Don't worry about the labor in front of you because God has to do it all anyway. That's not what he says. He says that there is this integral relationship that is paradoxical and knit together related to the concept of work. 
Solomon uses two pictures to present the same idea. They're intended to strike us with the reality of our need for God to intervene in the natural course of our life. The first picture is the picture of builders at work using their strength to build and fashion a house. In the overall structure of the Psalms, it's likely that this idea of building the house has multiple meanings. Look at the top of page three. So in Solomon's day, if you're talking about building a house, you're talking about building the temple. Okay, so Solomon set out to build the house of the Lord, right? And he took tons of resources. His father David had set aside billions of dollars for him to fulfill this task, right? He'd been given the charge to build God's house and the task required an unprecedented expense of resources, financial resource, material resource, labor, human resource, significant administration taking seven years to complete. So for your own like benefit, we're about to preach through Chronicles this fall, but go read 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and look at the intense labor that went into what Solomon's talking about, right? 70,000 people assigned to bear burdens, meaning take things from one place to the next. 80,000 people quarrying the stone. 3,600 overseers. Okay, we've got a couple general contractors in the room this morning. Can you imagine overseeing a billion-dollar, seven-year project with 200,000 people working for you? You're cringing right now, right? Like, the work that it takes to align who needs to be there when, when are you getting the shipment of the stone? Are the guys that are there to lay the mortar, are they there two days early sitting around with nothing to do? Are the guys that are hanging drywall, they show up and the electrical hasn't been laid yet? I mean, it is an administrative nightmare. Solomon's not saying none of that stuff mattered. What he is saying is that if God is not alive in this, if he is not working behind us like winds in our sail, we're running after vanity. We're running after something that doesn't matter. God has to be behind this, is what he's saying. He's not saying, hey guys, then go take a vacation. We live on the Mediterranean. Like go hang out right over there. Forget about moving the stone from there to there. It'll figure itself out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God's life has to be behind this. His oversight has to be in this. The second thing that it could be as well, there's this double meaning within the psalm that God is also at work to build the house of individuals, namely through constructing a family legacy. Later in the psalm, Solomon highlights the heritage of children, leading us to see that there is also a second idea of house building at work in the psalms. So the second picture that we get, right, we have the builders at work, and then we have the watchmen waiting awake through the night to protect the walls of the city. Solomon says that the most alert and able watchmen cannot on their own uh, initiative or in their own strength protect the city from danger unless God is himself watching over it. 
but he doesn't say, okay, so because God has to watch over the city, leave your post and go find the, 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 the local bar and hang out. Or, hey, just go home and go to bed, right? He doesn't say that. He says the watchman still stays awake all night. He just has to have someone else helping him. There has to be something else at work. Look at letter F. Elsewhere in scripture, we see this precise thing played out. God meets his people precisely in the place where he calls them to actively set out to work in partnership with his purpose. I have some quotes here from Haggai and Zechariah. The context of this, these are contemporary prophets giving ministry to the people of Israel at the same time. It's after the exile. They've come back to the land and they're rebuilding the temple. They get complacent and the word of God comes through Haggai. Hey, you guys have gone about your own thing for too long. Consider your ways and get back to the work that you're meant to do, which is build God's house. Get back to work. He says, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I might take pleasure in it and be glorified. Later in Haggai 2, he says, work because I'm with you. Get to work, guys. That's what he's saying. But then he gives Zerubbabel or Zechariah this picture of Zerubbabel, who was the leader at the time. And he shows up and he says, hey, Zerubbabel, I want you to know something. I've stirred up the people to work. I've stirred them up so they're going to go up into the hills and cut down trees and bring the wood back and lay the foundation and do the work. They are at work. But this isn't going to happen by might. It's not going to happen by power. It's going to happen by my spirit alone. Only my activity giving animation to your labors is what's going to bring this about. And he gives this amazing picture. He says... Look at the great mountain, meaning the opposition, the things that are hard to get by in front of you. Before Zerubbabel, it's going to become a plain. I'm going to level it and make this uh, smooth in front of him. And he will bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace. So it's this crazy picture that they're going to stand around as the temple's being finished, yelling grace at it. God goes, how this is going to be finished is by my grace. Now, this is a image, right? An image of what's going to happen. This didn't happen to where like the guys were standing there and the looking at the stone and going, grace, grace, grace. And then the thing just like hovers and lifts and pl- puts itself in place. That's not what's happening, right? There were still guys that got behind the pulleys and pulled it up and put it in. But they understood that God was alive and at work in the midst of all of it. They had to understand that only through his animating presence and his power could that be accomplished. Solomon then goes on to demonstrate that it's not work that's the problem. People of God, work is not the problem. Anxiety-induced work that cannot rest in the grace and sovereignty of God is the problem, right? The, the, the implication of what Solomon's getting to is verse two. If you are rising up early and going late to rest and eating the bread of anxious toil, underline eating the bread of anxious toil. This is not about 
not working hard. And we're going to talk about that next week because David makes a vow to the Lord that says, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to take comfort. I'm not going to go up to the comfort of my own bed or, or give myself rest until God's work is done. So this isn't about hard work. This is about anxiety-laden work. This is about toilsome work. This is about turning over, going, I have to take care of this. I have to accomplish this. If I don't do this, then dot, dot, dot. That's what we've got here. The knowledge of God's activity ought to lead us to a place of peace-filled, peace-filled rest related to work. Again, the psalm does not address that we should work, but how we should work. And he highlights here the gift of his sleep or rest that he gives to his beloved, right? He gives to his beloved sleep. Now, side note, the gift of rest and the gift of sleep are this remarkable picture every day that we cannot do things on our own, right? For what uh, experts say is seven to nine hours, right? You should. Some people do less. Seven to nine hours every day, a third of your life, you lay down and acknowledge that you cannot accomplish everything you would want to in your own strength. Your body breaks down if you don't do it. Right? And in the same manner, God gave the Sabbath to his people as a gift to remind them, one in seven days, slow down to remember that you running in anxiety will never accomplish the things that I have called you to accomplish. Every week, we need to stop and rest. But this reframes things, right? He giving his beloved sleep is an important reminder that we cannot accomplish everything in our own strength. But what I find is in our world, most people work so that they can play or that they can rest, right? Like we work so we can play or we can rest. The biblical framework is that we rest so that we can work. Now, this doesn't just mean your vocation, your job. This means relationships, family life. It means your personal life in God, right? Like we rest so that our bodies and our minds and our souls are rejuvenated and refreshed so that we can give ourselves to the things that are in front of us. That is what we see here. All right, look at Roman numeral four. So we move from this call that God has to intervene to Solomon seems to take this pretty like radical turn, right? Unless God builds the house, you're laboring in vain. Don't be anxious in your toil. And then he starts talking about kids. I've always found this really, really odd, right? For a lot of my life, the, the, the mashup of these two concepts has felt a little like disjointed to me. He turns and he begins to paint this picture of what you could call a full life. Look at Psalm 127, three to five. Behold, children, children, children in the room, you are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver up with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 
So again, it may strike us as odd, right? Why are we talking about kids all of a sudden? We're talking about work, and then we're talking about kids. All of a sudden, we make a radical turn. Look at the top of page four. It's important for us to recognize in the wisdom literature of the Bible, the concept of a blessing or the blessing functions in a really particular way. I want us to hear this because it's, it's easy to misread what Solomon's doing here. You could be tempted to think that this is some sort of transactional promise, right? The concept of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Psalms, the Proverbs, this is more like painting a picture of a full life so that you, your heartstrings get attached up into it and you want to pursue it. So this is more like a TV advertisement than it is saying, if you follow God, you're going to have a lot of kids. That's not what that's, that this is saying. This is more like a TV advertisement, right? A TV advertisement is, blessed is the one who drives this car because their life will be no responsibilities. They'll get to do whatever they want, right? They try to knit your heart into, man, I want that. I would like that. It's the same kind of thing. It's putting a picture of something over here and going, hey guys, this is a full life. This is a full life. And I want us to see that because we have to rightly assess what Solomon is saying as well as understand what he is not saying, right? What he is saying is that children are a gift and they ought to be desired, received as a heritage and treated as such. Hey, we should receive children as a gift from the Lord. That is very clear from the scripture. What Solomon is not saying, I, I really want us to hear this. He is not saying that the ability or the inability to have children is a sign of God's favor or a sign of God's displeasure. That is really important to say here. To interpret these verses like this would be to wholly misinterpret the purpose of how these statements are used in the Bible. The Bible is full of individuals who put their faith in God, who did not experience in this life the fullness of what God promises to those who love him, right? Hebrews 11 is full of people who responded to God in faith and whose lives they died waiting for the promise. They didn't see it, right? So this is not saying if God favors you, this is what it looks like. That is not what we're getting at here. But let me, let me give you a couple reasons why I think Solomon is doing this why he uses this as an example when he's talking about work. Uh, I think there's two, potentially three reasons. Number one, raising kids puts us face to face with the exact tension of work being laid out in verses one and two. Okay, I have a fun story. When, when my oldest son, who's now 16, crazy, was like four months old, so 16 years ago, I made these big commitments and, and they're really beautiful. I, I'm, I'm thankful for them. I had a vision to be really faithful by putting my face in front of my kids 
every day. Every day that I was around, there were certain hours that I was like, these are sacred. They're like a meeting to me. If somebody asks to do something during these times, the answer is no, because I already have a meeting. I'm with them. Now, that's awesome. And then there's sometimes where you're sitting on the floor with a four-month-old and you're going, what's happening? Moms, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're sitting there going like, ah, do they even know I'm here? Right? Like, do you even know? I mean, I, I really think this is important, but they, they don't even know that I'm here. Like, and then you get into these funny things where you're going like, God, I could be doing a lot of really important things, right? Like, couldn't you be using me in different ways right now? This seems small and insignificant and unimportant in this moment. And I remember one time sitting there and kind of wrestling through, the, through this with the Lord and going like, God, I really want to be about this, but this feels like I'm giving up other things so that I can fulfill this. And I felt like the Lord go, hey, Ron, what do you want for your life? And I was like, well, Lord, you know, I want to know you and I want to teach other people to know you. And I want, okay, who has to work to do those things? Well, you do, Lord. <laughs> and I felt like the Lord go, I can do more in a second than you could do, even if you took all this time and did the things that you thought were going to like be toward that end. The Lord goes, give this to me. And I was like, yes, sir. Here we go. I love this. Here's your rattle, you know? <laughs> but raising kids puts us face to face with the reality of like, where we are investing our lives in something that we do not see the fruition of for a long time. And for some, you may not see it in this life. That's attention, right? It puts it face to face. The second thing that I think Solomon is doing is that by painting a portrait of a full and satisfied life of a man with a quiver full of children, he's highlighting that the best and most fulfilling elements of work are those that are outside of us. He's rocking your selfish ambition, your accolades, your name, your value, your gifting, your whatever, right? He's putting it face to face and going, the most fruitful, best work that you can do is the kind where you have to give your life away to someone who can give nothing back to you in return. That is a blessing and a heritage. And secondly, the work that outlasts us, right? Seeds that we plant that we may never see the fruition of. These are the beautiful realities. Okay, so let me highlight some implications and then we'll bring it to a close. I've got four implications for us. And if we've got a couple minutes at the end, we'll, uh, we'll talk about this fall. Number one implication from this Psalm. Number one, the Lord has to work. Right? The psalm brings us face to face with our own poverty of spirit. Right? As believers, we are called to give our time, our energy, and our efforts towards partnering with God's grace in establishing and working with his kingdom in the world. 
right? The very things that we're laboring to see, we are not able to accomplish in our own strength. Now, here's a further implication. As believers, we should be working toward things that cannot happen unless God shows up, right? This means like your life shouldn't just be full of things that you're laboring to accomplish that you can pull off on your own. There are things that we should give our lives to that we long to see the fruit of God's kingdom manifest in our own lives and in the lives of others in such a way that if God doesn't show up, we have no hope, right? Our vision for our life or our success in our pursuits has to be shaped differently than the world's, right? If, if your vision of success and fruitfulness can be attained in your own strength, I would like to invite you to maybe ask God to alter your vision, to alter your vision to something that only he can accomplish. This is true for us personally, our salvation, our sanctification, our transformation, right? We have to see God work. We can do all the work in the world if he doesn't breathe upon it. It's in vain, in our families, in our ministry, in our vocations, right? So one implication of this psalm is God has to show up. The second implication, though, is we have to work, right? Christians are not exempt from work. We're not exempt from hard, exhausting, laborious work, right? Like he's talking to guys staying up all night to watch the city, right? Tiresome, labor, the 70,000 people that are bearing burdens to build the temple. He's talking to people who are working hard, we have to reject the false implication that God has to show up and work, that it would lead us to passive engagement in the things before us. God's designed us to work and to partner with him in accomplishing his purposes. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, 1. Paul says this, right after talking about the grace of the gospel, he says, now working together with him. And he goes on to paint the portrait of what he is laboring to see in the Corinthian church. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians where Paul, right after highlighting the glory of the gospel of Jesus, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace does not produce vain things in me. Go back to Psalm 127, right? The grace of God didn't produce a vain pursuit. However, what does Paul say? On the contrary, I worked harder than anybody. The apostle Paul goes, I worked hard, but it wasn't me. It was God's grace giving animation to my labors to see that through. The third implication that I think we can draw from this is related to the, the trouble of anxious work and what I'd call maybe like the reality of burnout. This passage invites us to reject all forms of working rooted in self-reliant, anxious energy that puts ourselves in the place of holding what God alone can hold, right? There's, we see in our moment, our cultural moment, there's this increase of people experiencing burnout in our society, right? There's people experiencing it, stating that they're experiencing it, and then there's all this fear of it, right? Like, I don't want to burn out. I don't want to run too hard and experience burnout. But I, I think we have to understand that burnout is not the result of working hard, right? 
Burning out is not being tired. It's not being unappreciated. It's not disliking your job. It's not being unfulfilled by what you do. Burnout is doing the wrong things or doing the right things the wrong way in anxious toil, running after them with a troubled heart that cannot rest in the grace of God. That's what leads to burnout. The last thing that I want us to just highlight from this is there is something beautiful in this psalm about embracing the mundane, the unseen, and the small. The psalm invites us to give our lives away in places that seem to our eyes today unseen, mundane, unimportant. The portrait of building a full and fruitful legacy invites us away from work that would reward us through accolades and praise of men today and give our lives away before the eyes of God to the things that matter for all eternity. This is like Matthew chapter six. When we preach through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes to his people and he says, when you do these things, and he's talking about your disciplines before the Lord, right? Fasting and praying and giving and pursuing the face of God. He says, don't do these things so that you get people patting you on the back today. What you don't want, family of God, is accolades today, right? We're not running after our name and our, uh, our importance and our successes, right? Don't run after that, those things. This psalm invites us to see that the fruitful, full, satisfied life consists in giving our lives away in the places that seem to us unseen, unnoticed, unpraised, unglorified, but we do before the eyes and the face of God. And let me tell you, our Father in heaven sees in secret. He sees in secret and he himself notices and understands and watches. And so we can turn our hearts to the places in our lives that seem like nobody cares, nobody appreciates us. I'm not getting what I deserve in this moment. And we can lay our lives into it once again, whether that's in your job, whether that's in your home, whether that's in your marriage, in your relationships, where you feel underappreciated, unseen, and unknown, you can go, there is a God who sees in secret. And Lord, I offer up to you this labor before your eyes. Would you come and make your presence known in this place? Would you come and fill me with your grace and animate me with your grace so that I might take another step towards this in your grace and for your glory? Amen. Amen.